Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. Welcome, listeners, to You Are Good, which is a feelings podcast about movies. We're watching A League of Their Own with our friend Jade. This is a super fun episode. Oh, yeah. This is our summer fun season that we're having now. School's out for summer. School's out forever. <laughs> like, I think that what we do really well is we talk about, you know, we don't talk about movies necessarily critically. We talk about them through the lens of people who are exploring feelings. I think we do that pretty well. That's kind of what we're looking out to do. But I like this episode because we talk in a number of different ways about people's motivations. And when I talk about and try to recognize other people's motivations, I understand myself a lot better. And I found it after listening to this episode to get ready for this introduction. Mm. I think that that's a thing that stands out in a big way. We talk about everyone's motivations and it's it's really lovely and it's super fun to do that with you and Jade in this case. I really loved it. Yeah. And I think Jade is such a wonderful guest. You know, her love of the movie and her perceptiveness about human beings are such wonderful attributes. And she also solves a mystery, I believe. So get excited for that. Wait, what is? Oh, yeah, she does solve a mystery. She she knows about baseball hands. (laughs) A thing came up when we were getting ready to record this introduction because Carolyn, who produces the show, puts together a audio collage at the beginning of each episode. And she came across a thing I was trying to keep out of this. I was trying to keep out of this episode. Mm. And she shared it in a group text to us. And I was like, Sarah, don't watch this. Don't watch this for your mental health. Oh, boy. But you haven't watched it either. So what if it's like... I haven't. Well, but you've seen, you've heard it described, I guess. So tell me about that. So here's what we're talking about. And I heard this talked about in Unspooled, uh, another great movie podcast, where they had talked about this thing that I didn't know about, where there was a cut scene, a kissing scene Mm -hmm. between Gina Davis and Tom Hanks. In this episode of Unspooled about A League of Their Own, Amy Nicholson and Paul Shearer talk extensively about this part that was cut in which Tom Hanks and Gina Davis kiss. And I didn't know that was even on the table. I didn't even know that that was cut, that was in the movie. I didn't know that it was cut. Yeah, this is the first I've heard of this. Yeah, she felt very strongly about him having to experience it and about and about how wrong it made the movie feel to her. And she felt so mm. strongly about how wrong it felt that I was like, I will never experience this. I can't let if Sarah wants to, she can experience it, but I'm going to tell her probably not because I love this movie and I don't want it tainted by them crossing this line. What if I watch it with headphones on and you watch me experiencing it like Grizzly Man? I love that. That would probably be too distressing. No, I would do that. Okay. <laughs> do you want to do that? Okay. All right, let me find it. And I'll be like Werner Herzog, like, you cannot watch this. It's too powerful. No, I'm Werner Herzog. <laughs> you're right. You're okay. right. Okay. All right. I'm watching it. I imagine it happens after they've taken the bus together and they've talked mm. about the war. Yeah. And about his former wives and so on. Okay. She comes out to the baseball diamond and he's doing batting practice. Okay. You look wrapped. With a robotic throwing apparatus, which is new technology, I assume, back now. Oh, wow. Yeah, that must have been cool. It was probably developed for killing Nazis somehow. <laughs> so she's watching him do his batting practice all by himself. She says, you look great. Oh, okay. Looks like he could still go. And he's like, ah, nah. <laughs> Dottie has a nice blouse on. Like, I've never seen her wear anything this fancy at any other part of the movie that I can think of. He's talking about being in the zone as a batter. This is how I felt for watching most of Saw. <laughs> This is like, when's it going to happen? Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. 
Oh, this is interesting. He says, what are you ashamed of? And she says, I'm just not supposed to care that much. It's just a game. Oh, wow. So they're having the debate if she's like, no, it doesn't matter that much to me. And he's like, yes, it does. I can see that it does. And she says, sometimes when I'm out there, it does feel perfect. Like I'm doing something perfect. Okay, now they're standing close. There's some leaning. Uh, uh, oh, and then he kisses her all of a sudden. Okay. Uh, sloppily. Uh, oh, and she's not pulling back. Okay, so that was a kiss that happened. Okay, well. Wow. Yeah. And then he says he tripped. <laughs> oh, God, Tom. Oh, geez, that's what you love. Oh, and then she backs away and she says, I thought you liked me. And then she runs off the baseball diamond. So, yeah, that is a giant bummer of a scene. Okay, and now she's going back to the <laughs> locker room. I like how this went from don't do this for your mental health to you going into the abyss for the two of us. <laughs> That's what I do. Oh, and here's Dyra Lowenstein for some reason. Oh, this is so this is where she's like, I'm going. Right. And he's like, I yes. can't have my best player leave. Yes. Oh, OK. That yes. makes sense. Oh, wow. And so it's not because of Kit. It's because of Jimmy. Right. Yeah. Oh, well, good job editing the movie. <laughs> totally. What Amy Nicholson had said in Unspooled, and I really, really agreed with, is like, while it would have been much truer to the world we all know where a man oversteps his bounds and and assumes something is something that's not or or whatever, however it can be interpreted. Yeah. What is refreshing about this movie is they have a closeness and a respect for each other that does not go to that place though what I do kind of enjoy about the way that I read that scene for its darkness Mm -hmm. we know that like he wants baseball and he can't have baseball and he describes her as what food water and baseball and she is baseball so Mm -hmm. like it seems like the text of that scene is he's trying to like acquire baseball by kissing her oh god you're right and like I'll take that but I just can't it just bums me out that that even exists yeah and I feel like what has always been special to me about the movie is that she and Jimmy like of course there's chemistry there and I feel like in, in movies, certainly, especially kind of 90s movies, there's this thing of like, you know, you got your man, you got your woman, you got your chemistry, and then, you know, they lie to each other for 90 minutes, and then they get married. And that's what a movie is. And there's something extremely special about this movie to me in, in the fact that I always felt like they were like, yeah, they have chemistry, but like, in life, you're going to have chemistry with people who aren't your husband, who's in, you know, a soldier right now. Right. And you can be like, oh, we have some chemistry, but like we're both going to be adults about it and like not sexually harass anyone or cheat on anybody. You know, we can see that as as part of this mutual esteem that we have as athletes and as people who love this sport. Yeah. Well, we talk in this episode about like, how does Jimmy manage to be an endearing character despite kind of coming on the scene as a big chauvinist. And I think the answer is A, Tom Hanks, and B, that they cut that scene. Yeah. The one thing that didn't come up in our conversation, we talked about how they make Jimmy Dugan work, even though he's a chauvinist. Like, Mm. he assaults the chaperone three times mm-hmm. he like kisses her in some kind of like a drunken stupor he slaps her ass at some point like oh yeah that chaperone does not have a good time I, that poor lady him kissing gina davis and this is not really actually out of character from anything we've seen in this situation but yeah one of the things we do we do talk about in the in his progression throughout the movie is we talk about him getting to a point where he cares 
about the girls. It, it is a progression. It happens over time. And by the end, he's changed as much as he can. He doesn't like yell at a woman to the, to bring her to tears. Like he tries to, you know, he tries to like, tries to work with her within that. But the one element we didn't talk about is that he finally realizes while looking at his contract on the toilet mm. that he can make money if they win the world series. And we talked about him being a stand in right. for men realizing the shifting role for women at this time. And there's something poignant and interestingly on the nose about the fact that like there's simultaneously some recognition of humanity through force of being emasculated. And also he realizes he mm. can make some money on it if he actually starts to take this seriously. You know, I just think it makes it so much better of a movie that Jimmy has no romantic interest in this because he's not ready for that. Like he's in a rebuilding yes. period, you know? And like, and I feel like movies so often take the tack of like, what does a man need to find his way and, and heal from all his trauma and like become emotionally intelligent? It's like, a nice lady and it's like no don't do that to nice ladies they have their own lives to live yeah absolutely absolutely and as the internet has let us know based on their response to john mulaney's relationship status people don't love it when you're doing work on yourself and then you start dating too early <laughs> uh, yeah but that you know i wonder if Dottie is meant to be kind of a way to understand your world war ii era grandma you know, if you have one, or just this idea of like, grandma is someone who has been through a lot. And how did she manage to do all the things she did? We don't know. She feels like, like so much like a woman of her time, you know, who has things that you, that she would never tell you about herself because it wouldn't be seemly or whatever. I think one of her character attributes is that she's, she's reserved and she doesn't, really, I think she doesn't really express about 90% of what she's thinking. And I feel like she's kind of meant to stand in for the idea of like, if you have a, a Dottie in your life who you wonder about, it's a way of kind of respecting the idea of like, yeah, like the old women in our lives have done things and felt feelings that they will never tell us about, but that doesn't mean that they didn't happen. Well, is there anything else you want to add before we dive in? I just hope that Wherever you are and whatever your summer is about, that somewhere inside of it is a feeling of being on a bus with your friends and teammates and reading some erotica. <laughs> I love when she's like, it gets good after this. <laughs> All right, let's do it. I'll pay you $75 a week. We only make 30 at the dairy. Well then, this would be more, wouldn't it? There's no crying. There's no crying in baseball. Why don't you leave her alone, Jimmy? Oh, you zip it, Doris. We told them it was their patriotic duty to get out of the kitchen and go to work. And now when the men come back, we'll send them back to the kitchen. What should we do? Send the boys returning from war back to the kitchen? Wow. Avoid the clap, Jimmy Dugan. Wow. That's good advice. Quitting. You regret it for the rest of your life. Baseball is what gets inside you. It's what lights you up. You can't deny that. It just got too hard. It's supposed to be hard. If it wasn't hard, everyone would do it. The hard is what makes it great.
You Are Good is made possible with support by Knack Factory, which is a commercial and creative content video production company based in Portland, Maine, but does work throughout these here United States. If you need video made for whatever your project might be that requires video production or content production, please get in touch with the folks at Knack Factory. And it's made possible by you by way of Patreon support, patreon.com slash you are good. We put out bonus episodes pretty regularly. And this week we talk about uh, grief and mourning, but we do it, you know, in the, in the Sarah and Alex, you are good sort of vibe and way. I think it's a lovely conversation. Carolyn and I lost our beautiful dog Vera this weekend. It was just, it was time. She passed and Sarah knew Vera very well. And so we talk about Again, grief, mourning, love, the love of a pet, the love of human beings, uh, being a person in the world. We talk about all sorts of things. And if you haven't heard any of these bonus episodes, they are, you know, two friends who love each other a whole lot talking about stuff. So you can tune in if that's a thing that you want to hear at patreon.com slash you are good. Hello, Alex Steed. How's it going? I'm coming to you live on tape from a McDonald's parking lot, and I've just decided that having trucks near me is part of my thing now, and also all kinds of cars. That's me, Sarah, all kinds of cars, Marshall. Who are we joined by, Sarah? We are joined today by my friend Jade. Hello, Jade. Sarah is very inspiring to me right now as a new podcaster. She's showing me that you can really record a podcast in any environment in a McDonald's parking lot. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? Your car is a pretty good space as spaces go because it's got a low ceiling yes. and curves. You know, this has like more recording booth qualities than, mm. you know, a lot of rooms in the house. So like, yeah, I, you know, you got a car, you got a show. This is very inspiring. Yes. <laughs> um, my show is called Backstage Triage. I am a registered nurse and way before I became a nurse, I did some work in the music industry And so since COVID started, I have been doing COVID safety consulting for the music and film industries. And I decided to start a podcast talking to folks who have made a living out of being creative about their experience navigating medical and mental health as predominantly gig workers, freelancers, performers in general. And so that has been going wonderfully. My third episode will be out in a couple days. But yeah, it's been awesome. Thanks for joining us. So when we were talking about having you on, this is one of the movies that you proposed. Why is that the case? So my dad and I bond strongly over two movies. They are both Tom Hanks movies. One of them is A League of Their Own. And it's because when I was very young, my dad was in grad school. We, um, whenever we rented movies, it was from the library and they had like four movies that I liked and that was it. And this A League of Their Own was one of them. So I have seen it tons and tons of times. I can quote most of it. Then I subsequently, when I went to work at a psychiatric hospital with teenagers on like an adolescent unit, I showed them this movie quite often and they really liked it as well. Mm. So it transcends generations. Sarah, can you tell us what A League of Their Own is about and what your history is with the movie? Oh my goodness. Yes. So A League of Their Own is a movie that I definitely just saw part of on TV many times growing up because it was on TNT a lot. And like, it was just like a basic cable friendly movie, I guess. And then it was like, I'm sure you could guarantee that people would stop what they were doing and watch it. And you didn't have to censor that much. I don't know how they pick movies, but (laughs) uh, it certainly was on a lot. And 
I don't think I know it as well as Jade, but I do feel like when I needed to brush up on it for this episode, I was like, well, I'm going to watch it, but first I'm going to play it in my head. Because <laughs> it's just like in there. To me, the funny thing about growing up seeing it on TV and then finally watching it, you know, on a DVD or something eventually is that I didn't know until relatively recently that it had what I am going to call, based on my subjective opinion, that horrible Madonna song in the end. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> It's such a bummer, man. They used to be on VH1 all the time. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, okay, so A League of Their Own, the basic premise is that during World War II, men, including professional baseball players, movie stars, everybody, but also baseball players, went to fight in World War II, which means that there was a shortage of baseball. And so one of the ways around that was to recruit women who were playing baseball for the All-American Girls Professional League and to make a professional women's baseball league that had its own World Series and that people would actually go to and get excited about the way that they were excited about watching Joe DiMaggio or Mickey Mantle play. And so the movie focuses on Dottie and Kit played by Gina Davis and Lori Petty, who are sisters from Oregon, yay, (laughs) who are living with their parents who run a dairy farm. Dottie is married and her husband is fighting overseas and Kit is the underdog of the family because Dottie is like the beauty and the great player and Kit is also a great player, but she's stuck in Dottie's shadow. And so they are recruited by... John Lovitz, he's so wonderful. He's the best. They're recruited and try out and join the league. And then Dottie bonds with Jimmy Dugan, who is played by Tom Hanks. And this is our first Tom Hanks movie, I think, which is utterly incredible. Shocking. Wow. Yeah. We've been saving it for a really special occasion. And Jimmy Dugan is, in the words of Gary Marshall, who is in this film, a falling down drunk who used to be a wonderful baseball player and has gone astray, basically lost his career to alcoholism. So he is chosen as manager of this team. He first looks down on his players because they're not ball players, they're girls. And then he realizes that they're great ball players. And he and Dottie have this bond because they both understand baseball and they both are kind of, I don't know, flirting with greatness, I think. Mm-hmm. Then they're approaching the World Series and Dottie's husband comes home and Kit gets traded. All, all the shit goes down at once. Very quickly. Last like 25 minutes. Yeah. They're just <laughs> like, but you yeah. can't have fun and play baseball forever. And it's like, oh, okay. And then it all comes to a head of the World Series where something very interesting happens that I want to talk about in detail, basically. So I will stop it there. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> this fits into the mold of movies we talked about at Christmas, Sarah, mm. uh, Christmas Vacation and a Christmas Story, where there's absolutely a plot, but also it's just a series of vignettes. Yeah. Yes. It's a series of lovely moments. And the where I really started to realize it is like every time the, oh my God, every time the part comes up where the woman doesn't know how to read and the other woman yes. helps her read, oh, yes. I like anticipatorily cry at this point. Like I'm already <laughs> like tearing up. <laughs> and the part with Betty Spaghetti. Yeah, oh, yeah. Finding out about her husband. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah, seriously. 
I always cry at the part where Marla's dad oh, yeah. puts her on the train. Like the part where he has to talk to John Lovitz and then put her on the train. Yes. And I was noticing this time just like the amazingness of the line, don't worry about me, you're going to play baseball. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't really understand baseball as it exists in the world. The only fact I feel like I confidently know about baseball is that Doc Ellis pitched a no-hitter, which is a very good thing, while on acid, which I think is cool <laughs> that you can do a really good job at baseball while you're on acid. But to me, baseball is the thing that approaches religion mm -hmm. in a less scary way than actual religion. Mm. <laughs> it's got such a reverence here in America, especially mm. with families. I was talking about this with my sister recently, actually, because because we both enjoy watching baseball and also we had been noticing lately on TikTok there's been like baseball teams that will mic up some of their players and then post what they talk about during the game on TikTok and it's all very oh, wow it's so funny it's and it's like and they just seem more so much more like lovable I think because of that and I was like why is it that baseball players are always doing funny stuff and then we were like because the games are a million hours long and a lot of it is just them sitting in the dugout so they have more time to like <laughs> goof around but yeah baseball has such a reverence in the u.s that i don't know if other sports have hmm. yeah i don't i don't know why that is i never i like i played baseball as a kid but i was certainly not a true believer but i i there's something about baseball media that I really enjoy like and it was all around when I was when when I was a kid like major league major league two what was the what, a league no what's the one with the dead dads angels in the outfield angels in the outfield was another one angels in the outfield that's right yes. yeah it was something where like even though I didn't grow up loving it as a sport I loved it as a piece of media and like a piece of American popular culture mm. yes I really like pastimes that involve having an excuse to like not do very much for a very long period because like a baseball game is like you're just there yeah yeah forever and you're just with people <laughs> and it makes sense to me that if you're playing it and you're spending longer hours together that you would bond more and to me mm -hmm. also like the anticipatory crying of may teaching her teammate how to read is also that like they're all on the bus together and in that almost famous kind of way like yeah I think all I really want is to be on a bus with my team mm. yes their team is them and their team is like us I mean it's like them against not just like the the other teams but it's like from their first game, it's like them against the expectation that they can or can't play mm -hmm. Jade can you talk about about their first outing playing ball? Yes. So the first game, they run out of the dugout. They're really excited to play. And then they realize, number one, there's hardly anyone in the crowd. And then number two, they're getting like outright heckled and getting jeers from the crowd about how girls can't play ball. And then you got a guy jumps up on top of the dugout making fun of making fun of them, essentially mocking them. Which is like, you bought a ticket, man. Yeah. It's like, why are you here? <laughs> but then slowly they, I mean, I think during that first game, there's a couple times where they like the girls make a play or do a move, like catch a ball fancy like or whatever it is to basically show the crowd that like they know what they're doing. And then it impresses a few people. I don't know if that happens in the first game, but it definitely happens more and more and more as they go on mm. um, throughout the games. 
Okay, I was thinking while watching it for this episode about how Tom Hanks, I think, is very good at making lovable all kinds of loutish chauvinism in this movie. And, I mean, he shows up late. He's not really our protagonist, but we know he's not not our protagonist either. Like, it's hard to imagine watching this for the first time and trying to figure out where to file Jimmy Dugan and all this because he comes in with the attitude of, He's like, those aren't ball players, they're girls. And he says it in that cute Tom Hanks way, but he still says it. And he's drunk and just a dick at first. Yeah, so it's like, how is he going to get there, I guess? And it's interesting that he, Tom Hanks first gets in the game. Like, I feel like he's kind of the proxy for, like, the men of America, actually, for, like, starting to wake up and realize what's happening in front of him while he's scratching his balls. Mm. And... He really first steps up and gets invested when he disagrees with how Dottie is calling the plays because she's basically stepped up as manager in his absence. And so he starts fighting with her about it. And that's how he starts. I think that's how he starts actually realizing he has talent on his hands. Yeah. Dottie's calling the doing the signals to the batter. Mm -hmm. And Dugan realizes that she knows what she's doing, but he disagrees. And then he's like, he's trying to ask what the girl's name is so that he can like yell at her to do it differently. And yeah, that's when he realizes like, oh, okay, I have at least one person on my team that might know what they're doing. (laughs) And that slowly flashes out to everybody else. And then like the way this movie concludes... This is, to me, the great mystery at the heart of A League of Their Own. Because in the beginning, Gina Davis, who is not Gina Davis, she's some other lady, Mm -hmm. but Gina Davis's character, Dottie, is like, you know, it's not that important to me. It's just something I did about being a Rockford Peach. And her daughter, like, lovingly forces her to go to the big, basically they're being inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. And... Then we watch the whole movie. We watch Dottie, like, try out for the Peaches, basically because her sister is like, they won't take me without you, and I can't stay here. I'm nothing here. And so she goes and she plays, and she's great. And she and Jimmy talk about that and how she's great and how he recognizes her as great. And then her husband, who is Bill Pullman, Mm -hmm. showing up to steal the woman back from Tom Hanks that... Tom Hanks took from him in Sleepless in Seattle. (laughs) Oh, my gosh, that's right. Or no, I guess Sleepless in Seattle is the following year. So Bill Pullman takes the woman and then Tom Hanks takes the woman back in Sleepless in Seattle. (laughs) I just never even put that together until right now. Isn't that weird? Yeah, they're like the dueling daddies of the... He also he comes back and he's like, I'm here. I'm I'm busted my foot, but I'm alive and I get to be done with the war. And Dottie's like, oh, yay, let's go back to being married right now. I mean, they were always married, but like, let's go back to Oregon right now. Right. Right on the eve of the World Series. (laughs) Yes. I think her husband is amenable to her actually changing her mind and at the last second showing up and playing for the Peaches. And then afterwards, she's like, "Okay, bye. I'm going to go be married now. And then apparently and then at least claims to really not give a shit about it. And at the end of this movie, I'm still not sure if we're to believe that she actually secretly gives a shit about it or if she truly was just like a great baseball player who didn't care that much. Like, what was that? It's hard for me to tell if she actually cared about because she does care. She cares about it. That becomes obvious at several points, but it's always like, does she actually care about the game itself or is she caring about her sister and 
invested in her success in it or invested in the other girls as well does she actually care about the game or is she is she caring about the other girls who have so much more writing on it than she does Mm. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about why she's so standoffish about caring about it. Yeah. It's like, oh, Dottie doth protest too much, right? Right. Yeah. Well, Dottie also seems like from the beginning, not a person who likes enjoying things very much. Like that seems to be (laughs) hard part about being Dottie generally. Yeah. I had anticipated that like part of her anxiety about going back was that her and her sister had a like lifelong beef because we hear we kind of hear that like when she's older that you know there's even some like reluctance to go back and see her sister in some way right even though her husband is very nice we hear but I was curious it was that and then I real and then I remember the end of the movie within the because like there's obviously this takes place in like 1993 and 1944 or 45 or whatever Mm -hmm. so I forgot how it originally ended which is like her sister bests her or maybe she lets her sister best her i don't know how we're supposed to read that either i don't think anyone has ever been able to decide that we my dad and i have been arguing about that for like 20 years (laughs) what where do you land both of our opinions have changed gone back and forth over the years on that we are currently on the same page about it we think that Dottie did not intentionally let go of the ball but she was very happy for her sister to have mm. that moment of glory. Mm. I like that. Yeah. I don't think that it's in Dottie to let, you know, like Dottie, Dottie sandbagged her sister a couple times in the movie. So yeah, the arc they have her set up on is that she like never lets Kit win and she's always micromanaging her. It feels like something went awry on the way from screenwriting school because it would imply character growth for her to like move on from that and be less competitive with her sister, but also it would be kind of passive aggressive to let her win the World Series, I think. Right. And also it would be just wildly not fair to the rest of the Rockford Peaches. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because of their thing that they have. Yeah. So when you're playing baseball, like do you accidentally let go of of baseballs sometimes? Like the way that she drops the ball. Okay, so the ball is in her hand and it falls to the ground on her knuckle. And like it looks like her knuckle, like it, the way it like hits her knuckle because she's gripping it, it causes her like fingers to release the ball. It doesn't look intentional. Yeah. Oh, wait. Okay. As a medical professional, if I like slam my hand and then my knuckles get hit, like would, would that just cause a reflex potentially where my fingers just spring open yes all right i feel like we're getting to the bottom of this yeah when it hits your knuckles like that it can cause yeah it can cause your um your fingers to release well you heard it from a medical professional dear listener (laughs) (laughs) if i were to let kit win well a i would be letting down my entire team who i love and b it's like she never really won and it's like it just feels so cruel because it like reinforces kit's feeling about Dottie's superiority, which Dottie doesn't appear to believe in, but she just is also going to play as hard as she can. I think Dottie, I think she believes that Kit can be a little brat because she can. Kit can be a little brat and she, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and Dottie doesn't want to hand her anything, but she does want to see her succeed. So there's some Mm. dissonance there. She wants to see her to succeed, but she wants her to earn it. Yeah, it would be hard to let Kit do things. Kit's exhausting. Like, Kit <laughs> needs to learn some shit. Yep. Dottie realizes it. But yeah, I'm, I'm sure she appreciates the victories. Sarah, when we had another show that we were trying to make before this called Apocalypse Friends, the 
conceit of Apocalypse Friends where we were talking about friendship and apocalypse movies. And this was one of the movies that we recorded an episode about. Like, why did this fit into that mold? I wish I could remember a single thing we said in that recording because maybe some of it was good. Yeah, it's gone. We blacked out. Yeah, to me, this made sense as a movie because it is about this feeling of like, oh my God, all the men are gone. Like not all the men, but boy, a lot of them. Mm -hmm. Normal life has been drastically interrupted. And I think kind of in early COVID times, we were talking about this idea that maybe in the way that we now retroactively imagine it was in World War II, we would be brought together by this idea of a, a shared enemy, which is a virus, you know, and people were talking about victory gardens and stuff like that. And of course, it wasn't such a great time of American solidarity when you look at things like Japanese-American internment. But, you know, yeah. to me, there's something about World War II that feels like very close and yet very remote as someone who grew up or was born in the late 80s and grew up in the 90s. Like, you know that it was the definitive historical event that kind of set your parents' lives in motions, or it was for me because my parents were boomers. And it seems to have, in a sense, made the entire America in which a person would grow up in the 90s. And yet it also felt it was like historical enough that there was an American girl doll about it. Yeah. As well. (laughs) At the moment that we started doing this show and we're talking about what movies are we going to talk about that seem relevant, like A League of Their Own felt like the sunny side of relevancy to, to life suddenly feeling completely different overnight. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting because the interview that I just did for my podcast episode that was released yesterday with Danny Bland, he and I talked about this, but I didn't actually put it in the episode Mm. because we were kind of comparing it to how the lives of folks in World War II in America, I think, were much more disrupted than things are right now. Mm -hmm. I've made an Instagram account that I've been posting to occasionally now that kind of has wartime like public health posters and PSAs because hmm. the art is really, really cool. And so I've been posting those, but a lot of it is like loose lip sync ships, air raid precautions, lights off after a certain time, just mm. really stringent like requirements to, you know, conserving certain materials and things like that. Just mm-hmm. it really impacted the lives of everyone and, you know, sent a good portion of the country off to war. And yet when I look I can't look back because I'm not old enough, obviously. But when I think about World War II, at least what I've been taught by mm-hmm. my family and by my, you know, in school and things like that and by popular culture is that it was a time of patriotism and togetherness. And was it really like that or have we really changed that much as a country that mm-hmm. it was like that back then and now it's like we're fighting each other over face masks? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know what the diff- what is different. Well, I think, to, I mean, to Sarah's point, like it wasn't because we put Japanese people in camps. I think that like a huge part of it is I learned about World War II the same way I'm sure that you did, which is through a lot of glorious nostalgia, like lookbacks, mm-hmm. you know, and through the you know, Steven Spielberg movies and stuff. And like that's the that ends up becoming the collect and like Tom Brokaw books, you know, like oral histories. And stuff. I have never watched Saving Private Ryan because it looks too sad and too scary to me. Like I am. It is both of those things. Yeah. And I know that that's like because that's super a dad movie. Dads love World War Two. Dads love Teddy Roosevelt. Like these are the classic. I don't know what to get my dad. So I'll get him a book about these things book and tom hanks is in that as the dad 
and Tom Hanks is in that. Like, the brutality of World War II doesn't seem to be, like, I don't know. Like, I'm sure that we, we whitewash it like we do everything with history, but the, it doesn't seem like something that we are trying to scoop out of our sort of glorifying of that time either in a weird way. Mm. I think it's interesting the way that popular culture looks back on World War II versus, I mean, Vietnam, obviously, just two wildly different situations it nostalgia in a good way for world war ii and it's like why that was such a terrible time in our history and they have like just barely a nod to how things in a league of their own about how things were not ideal for people of color and it's that one like mm. oh my god it's a wild scene oh my gosh <laughs> that is a wild moment it is absolutely bonkers <laughs> It is like a notes app apology of a scene in a way. <laughs> exactly, that's exactly what it is. And then they're like, "Oh, okay, we're done. We acknowledge racial disparities in baseball." So um, Dottie is—they're like warming up before a game or something. Yeah, before a game, and someone hits a foul ball and it goes um, kind of over the side of the fence. And a black woman gets the ball, and Dottie's like, "Right here, like throw it to me," and. The woman throws the ball and Dottie, like, she throws it super hard. Dottie catches it and, like, has to take her mitt off and show that, like, wow, you're, you know, to show that she's a really good thrower. And then the woman just, like, nods to her and goes back to the sideline where, you know, the people of color have to stand because they can't be in the stands. Yes. It's like, oh, okay. That's right. Things were extremely terrible for non-white people back then. But it is it is honestly like a Saving Private Ryan had like a 25 second scene where someone was like, and Japanese people are in internment camps. Like it's like. Exactly. <laughs> such a wild aside. Yeah. And you really and you need to know the you need to know, like if you're a kid watching that, like I don't remember that scene as a kid because I didn't have the context for it. So like if you don't mm. have context for it, you're mm. not like. That scene is for you if you already know that message. Right. If you're like, I'm waiting. And it feels like an acknowledgement, too, of like, black people also had their own baseball league at the time. And there's no movie about that. Yeah. That I can think of or that's on TNT every day. It almost felt like a disclaimer. Like, yeah, we know black people were treated horrendously back then. And they also had their um, league. So don't say anything about it because we are mentioning it right here. We nodded. Yeah, totally. Someone who I follow on Twitter the other day said that they rewatched this for the either they rewatched it or they watched it for the first time and they were surprised at how and they mentioned that was like the biggest scene that they mentioned but they said how how surprised they were at how poorly it aged. I will be honest like I was kind of surprised by that take and the take was like that you know there's like a lot of like anti-slut commentary like anti-fat commentary and I never felt it was mean-spirited but maybe my t and, and I also felt it was very much of the like men in the 1940s but yeah but i was surprised by it well let's talk about may and doris i can see seeing those characters either way or like marla hook is a good example too because she's like someone where they have to be like she's so mm. ugly and it's like well she's i mean she's not she's like a perfectly lovely looking woman like people are but you just have to have her like tilt her head real far down and hunch up her shoulders and stuff like that so that's how they accomplish that i guess but mm. may and doris like i th i can yeah. see seeing that those characterizations as unkind but like i just always loved them and felt like if the movie didn't love them as much as i did it wasn't obvious about it <laughs> i really 
actually do love the dynamic between May and Doris because growing up as like I have recently lost a shit ton of weight but I grew up overweight my whole life and I wrote in my phone when I was rewatching this movie for this podcast like always a Doris never a May (laughs) (laughs) but it's not something that I resent whatsoever Doris has this like really endearing protectiveness Mm -hmm. of May and it goes back to how they met which is when Doris was a bouncer at the like strip club (laughs) at her dad's strip club (laughs) yeah at her dad's strip club upstate right (laughs) give me a prequel movie about that like Roadhouse comma T-O-O yeah (laughs) I would love that I really like the protectiveness of Doris, but then also Doris gives me shit for, you think there's a man in this country who ain't seen your bosoms? (laughs) (laughs) Which, like, I feel like if my friend said that to me, my friend who I loved, I would take that as a compliment that my bosoms have been seen a lot. (laughs) Yeah, and and by no means means am I defending any particular characterization. I think I'm in a similar boat where... I just have loved those characters all my life to the point where I was like, oh, I never got the sense that they were being made fun of. Like, I got the sense that like Mm. May is May as played by Madonna is like a proud slut in the movie, which I think is is actually pretty awesome. And then Doris. Yeah, there's that really beautiful scene with Doris on the bus where she explains her shitty marriage. Yeah. Yes. Or her shitty boyfriend or whatever. But yeah, her shitty guy. Yeah. She basically says that like he's like the one guy that acknowledged her in any way and all the other guys never really acknowledged her but even he is bad and he ends she ends up tearing up his picture and throwing it out the window and I I I loved that but it's always difficult where it's like if you love the characters and you love their interplay but are they still being played for laughs by people who don't get it I don't I that's always like a complicated Mm. thing that I I don't know where to land on this is sort of the whole project of the celluloid closet which is a movie that I grew up watching a lot because it was on AFC all the time and all their other movies were incredibly depressing (laughs) that whole documentary is like a love letter written by a bunch of different queer people talking about like I never had a whole movie where I saw myself so here like the tiny little pieces of movies where I felt like I saw myself and maybe I was being insulted or maybe I was being loved and it's hard to know but like I saw something that I recognized right I feel like is the attitude a lot of people to those movies so like you know I, I think Susie Bright talked about you know Joan Crawford and Johnny Guitar and like she comes on screen wearing that that cowboy shirt at one point and it's very exciting because it's Joan Crawford and she's wearing a cowboy shirt and that's all you're gonna get sure or like Doris Day and Calamity Jane mm. and I feel I feel like Doris and May are a little bit like that too May is a big slut and Doris is like finding her way to believing that nice guys will like her. But like at the end of the day, in one way or another, Doris and May are a duo and like they are for each other. Yes. And they're the closest characters the whole movie, I think. They're like the tightest. It's the tightest bond. Oh, yeah. Because Dottie and Kit, like we know there's a lot of love there, but it's like it's just endless fighting. I think May is kind of protective of Doris, too, in a way. Mm -hmm. She doesn't let people treat her like shit either. And I've always thought that their dynamic was really endearing. And I it might be because I have absolutely been close friendships that I've had with other women. I have felt mm. a similar dynamic like and it works. Well, I mean, it works because we, you know, and I think it's OK to make fun of each other as friends. Oh, and yeah. 
I think that's fine. <laughs> I just like seeing movies where like women are friends with each other and that's the point of the movie and you honestly don't get that very much. Yeah. And I like movies where men are friends too without committing any murders either. <laughs> like I do like movies where men yeah. are friends. I like okay, I like movies where men are friends explicitly because they commit murders together like in Goodfellas. And I like movies where men are friends and they specifically don't commit any murders at all, like in Ocean's Eleven. And I, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I don't like the movies where men are like incidentally killing people, like they're in war and they're friends in war, and you just kill people merrily all day long. Like that's the area I don't like. And there's a lot of those. There is, yeah. This is such an interesting movie, right? Because like Dottie's the dad the whole time. Oh my God, she is. And like a jaw you could cut glass with. Yes. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like Dottie's the dad throughout. It takes Tom Hanks a while to realize that because he has been assigned to be the dad. And he, and he, I think as, mm. as was touched on earlier, like he's kind of a stand in for men generally who have to reconcile that like women are here in different roles now. And like we have, that's, that's kind of what I guess like socially we're starting to uh, acclimate to in the face of what's going on. But what is it about Dottie that makes that the case i mean she's got like a she's got a particular level of certainty like she's not she's non-plot like what is it about dotty that makes her the primary authority figure from start to finish in this movie dotty is not really seeking to achieve or get anything out of the baseball experience hmm. most of the time like she says at the beginning i'm married that's what i want let's not confuse things like that that is her goal she has her goal achieved which is being married and she wants to have a ch have children with her husband when he returns and so she's not really seeking approval of anyone throughout the whole movie and she's very self-assured and she's around a lot of people who are either alone or kind of unstable or acting like children like in the case of Jimmy Dugan and I think she just naturally like slides into that role in the sense that she doesn't really need anyone to take care of her um, and so and all of these other people do and so now she's she's the one that's mm. doing it like she's the one who is like is not trying to prove herself or is trying to prove herself the right. least like she can just go out there and play baseball basically and like maybe mm -hmm. other people read her character differently but I feel like she is like that most dangerous of things, at least in figure skating, the only sport I've ever really understood, which is someone who's just going to get out there and skate for themselves, mm -hmm. which means that they don't give a shit anymore, or at least they're good at, at giving the impression that they don't. She's a beautiful player, and I, I do suspect that she's truly able to walk away from it. And I also think she's lying about it not being important to her because it was. And like maybe mm -hmm. the game, maybe it's that the baseball wasn't that important to her, but the baseball team mm. was what was important to her, you know, and it hurts to admit that that was so meaningful but that's why you take a long bus ride so you can have a two-hour long flashback yeah. <laughs> yep and she tamed it she tamed the child that was jimmy dugan and taught him how to be the kind of man who when a telegraph boy comes in to tell someone that their husband's been killed in the war it teaches him how to do it right and does it on their behalf that scene is so fucking mm. rugged where where that guy comes in and has to explain deliver the telegram and doesn't have the telegram right and then tom hanks has to deliver the the, the news oh my god that guy that was the first day tom hanks officially became president i think <laughs> where do we think he ends up in terms of his relationship with his team because 
he's told and you know we have the famous which i can't believe we haven't referenced to this point yet seen there's no crying there's no crying in baseball no crying in baseball although of course <laughs> i'm sure there's tons right like what what is what is getting hit in the leg by a fast moving object but an excuse to cry a little bit i hope you know he starts off seeing them as not ball players but girls and then like I don't know what happens to his character. Like why why are we allowed to love him as much as we do? With the Betty Spaghetti scene, when he has to deliver the news that her husband died, I feel like that's our first really endearing moment of him, and where he becomes more paternal hmm. than he had been throughout the whole movie. That's really a moment when you it kind of reminds us that of the gender dynamic, the differences between the experience of women and the experience of men in that time because yeah. women were constantly afraid of getting that telegram back then and um in that moment Dottie was not able to be the the father or the caretaker at that time because she also she thought it was going to be Bob she mm. thought it was going to be her own husband and so that's when Tom Hanks kind of like steps up to the plate oh gosh <laughs> I just literally no. <laughs> um, that's when he kind of steps up to the plate to become a, you know a paternal figure for them yeah and it's like the first mm. time he regards the it, it, as a room of humans like it's like the first time he doesn't mm. see it as like yes up until that point he even in his like nicer moments he sees this as a burden and yeah, I mean that's such a great point Jade I hadn't even considered that it's like the reason Dottie wasn't being a dad in the situation was because she was herself incapacitated by the possibility that it was going to be her husband but then just like that fucking prick like the guy who comes in with the message <laughs> yeah uh -huh. you're so happy that someone stands up and then you know dramatically rips the paper out of his hands and, and kicks him out I really love that scene a lot like his journey maybe is that like he has to deal with the fact that he sees this as a humiliation to him personally and like this is how yeah he's being shown how his name has fallen and he has to get out and wave his little hat <laughs> which is like a pretty demeaning way to put it and yeah it's like he has to figure out like no like this is not about me anymore like this is about I'm not the athlete anymore like I I let that go and I have to accept that and I can actually be a mentor. And I think a lot of Jimmy's standoffishness and his resentment of this entire situation comes from him feeling emasculated because he lost his career in baseball because he hurt his knee, mm -hmm. but he hurt his knee because he got drunk and fell out of a hotel window. And now be also because of that injury, he wasn't able to go to war and serve his country, which <clears throat> we find out he does feel badly about and is ashamed of when he's having that conversation on the bus with Dottie when he says, you know, I have no cartilage in my knee, but I you don't need cartilage to pull, you know, shoot Nazis. You don't need cartilage to pull mm -hmm. a trigger with your finger. And so I feel like he really feels like he's failed I guess as and I feel I think he feels emasculated because mm. he can't play ball now he's coaching girls and he can't go to war like all the other you know like men did back then because mm. of that injury that he is ashamed of yeah the, the men in this movie are interesting the selection we get are like those who by definition are not suited for battle so we got mm -hmm. Tom Hanks 
Ira Lowenstein, and of course, Mr. Harvey Barr, Gary Marshall, and Stillwell Angel. Yeah. Those are the men. Yeah, <laughs> and John Lovitz. <laughs> John Lovitz. John Lovitz, right? <laughs> we were left with the 1987 cast of uh, Saturday Night Live. Like, uh, that's who was in charge of the country. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And also, I love, I just want to mention, he shows up a lot, but I think maybe the first time we see him is at a Racine home game, David Lander, who we lost recently and who played Squiggy. And Laverne and Shirley. Oh shoot! Which starred yes. Penny Marshall yep, as the radio. This is this is a very there's there's some Laverne and Shirley in here. It makes me very happy. Oh man. Me too. Was it Penny Marshall or Gary Marshall who directed this movie? Penny Marshall directed it. I think we've lost touch with this fact now, but up to the like early 2000s, nobody knew if women could direct movies until Penny Marshall did a leak of their own, and then she proved. I guess we knew that women yeah. could direct movies like biologically but not that we were capable of making a profit yeah and penny marshall proved that right. <laughs> and i remember as a kid because i was like 11 12 and i wanted to be a director and i was like it can be done look at penny marshall you even have the same name yeah so gary marshall made laverne and shirley right because laverne and shirley was a spinoff of happy days yeah robin williams got his start in television because he was on mork and mindy and mork and mindy was a spinoff of happy days <laughs> and specifically because gary marshall's son used to watch happy days every day after school and then he was like at some point after he saw star wars he only wanted to see alien things and then gary marshall was like make an alien on this show so my son keeps watching it that's how the character mork <laughs> came around and then he got his own spinoff yeah it's so good that's amazing which is like exactly what you would guess really like that it's just mr harvey bars being like get me an alien right yeah. <laughs> let's just mention because there's so many characters in this movie and so many delightful moments in this movie i just want us to do like a speed round of things that we love. Okay. Yeah. I love the part where they all go swing dancing. I love it so much. <laughs> yes. That's how Marla meets her husband. Yes. Because they get her drunk. Yep. I've always been confused about, does Marla come back for the World Series? Oh, like, did she get married and leave? Do you mean? Like, did she come back after that? I don't know, actually. Yeah. Yeah. I think she's out. Why did she do that? Like, Marla, why can't you wait until the season is done to get married to this man you just met? I know. Okay, this is the great conflict of this movie. It does seem like the choice in this movie is between men and baseball. Yeah, it does. So the roller coaster of emotions between when Bob returns in the World Series. Mm -hmm. Bob returns. Oh, we're so relieved. It's a very touching, tender moment between him and Dottie. And then... Shortly thereafter, in the next morning, she says she's leaving. And we're like, Bob, what the fuck? Why aren't you going to let her stay and play baseball? And so we're upset. But then Dottie ends up coming back from the World Series. And Bob is bragging about how that's his wife from the stands. And I think that's really endearing <laughs> that Bob is really proud of her. Mm. I feel like there are two lines in this movie, two separate lines in this movie that have endured in, and been referenced many times since in other um, pieces of popular culture. Number one, obviously there's no crying in baseball, but then also number two, when Jimmy Dugan is giving her the speech mm. about how it's hard, if it wasn't hard, everyone would do it. The hard is what makes it great. Mm -hmm. And then she's like, oh, damn. 
I should probably come back. <laughs> I would argue there's the third one where he signs the kids baseball and it says avoid the clap. There's that one too. Avoid the clap, Jimmy Dugan. It's good advice. Yeah, it's practical. Especially in the 40s. I don't, what did they just like pump to you full of strychnine or something back then? Yeah, you don't want that. All right. Well, we know that Sarah has a has a bladder full of uh, McFlurry, so we're going to be a little <laughs> mindful of that. I want to make sure that we get in a question, which is we know that Dottie is the dad in this movie. Who would we consider to be the daddy? You know, I really want to give Evelyn some credit, but she's a very indulgent parent who has no idea how to manage her child, <laughs> so it's not her. Um <laughs> I personally love Stillwell. I think Stillwell is much needed comedic relief at several points. Well, actually, yeah, I would say that perhaps like Stillwell is the daddy because he is the only one who has to represent, like be a proxy for a parent who has died because Evelyn doesn't live to see the Cooperstown induction. And so he's the one who has to turn up and they somehow found... A man in his 50s who looks like Stillwell Angel or who's able to embody that. Yeah, he's perfect. Yes. <laughs> there have to be real Stillwell Angels out there, like little kids who like grew up with their mommies playing professional baseball in the 40s. And like, that's just really cool. And he's a lucky boy who I think by the time he reached adulthood figured out how lucky he had been and it's mm-hmm. a, just a really it's a really lovely moment when he when he shows up right and it's a lovely detail that they put him in as an adult like he didn't need to come back you're not like i want to know what stillwell's arc resolves in right right right, right. <laughs> and it's lovely that that's how they treat it as he comes back and is a newer generation that remembers their legacy which is a really a cool thing to do one of my favorite moments in the whole movie though and i think it's because this moment is tied to bonding with my dad because this is his favorite moment. So you know the no crying in baseball part where it stems from um, Hank's yelling at Evelyn because she made a mistake, she had an error. Mm -hmm. And then there's another moment later on, and this shows Jimmy's character development a little bit, when he again wants to yell at Evelyn really, really badly, Mm. but he decides to actively contain his anger and treat her with respect. And um, he's like, he's really, really like his physical acting in that moment is just hysterical. (laughs) And my dad dies every time. It's so funny. And when she walks away and he's like shaking because of how (laughs) the anger he was holding in. (laughs) But Evelyn's like, so like, Oh, okay. Thank you. Like she's like <laughs> really, really like relieved that he doesn't yell. Yeah, at her. that is like the daddy move where you're like you're like I am a parent now and I can't just yell when I'm upset. I have responsibilities. Jade, who's your daddy? I think the relationship between Doris and May, I think, is my favorite because um, there is they both take care of each other in very different ways and. I just really love that relationship. I would say Doris. Doris is my daddy. <laughs> yeah. I want to go with May because like this was like a sweet spot for Madonna. Like this was a sweet spot Madonna time. Oh, this yeah. was like I feel like Madonna at the absolute peak of her powers. Except for the song. Like yep. and also just think about like 
a pop singer in the early 90s and this was like part of her image obviously but like a pop singer in the early 90s playing a slut in a movie like that's a hard thing to imagine happening and i i don't know i i loved i love her character um i love that she pitches that maybe her um she can be playing and her shirt will open and her bosoms will fall out like i love everything about that character it's so funny to me and i would be friends with her easily i love that may wants a pocket for her cigarettes yes madonna like thing was like i like sex i am the sex haver like that was her image and she was like Mm-hmm. the one person who like picked that as her thing and therefore was allowed to do it i feel like like they're like and then if someone else wanted to be sexual they're like no no we already have someone doing that go away mm-hmm. <laughs> it was her and prince and that was it that's all you could that's all there could be that was it that was like it's yeah yeah although curiously not with each other i feel like madonna's maybe her problem is that she had too many good ideas in a row and then she was like, fuck, I can do anything. And it was like, oh, no, I don't think you can. Uh, I saw a tweet the other day that was talking about how wild it is that, like, what war did Elvis get drafted into? It would, ha- it would have to be Korea, I would imagine, based on the time. Because he was, like, at the height of his popularity and he got drafted. The tweet that I saw was, like, can you imagine if, like, you're at war and you hear someone yell, cover me, and it's Beyonce. <laughs> <laughs> That All-American pastime, baseball, brings out the All-American Girl Baseball League for spring training at Alexandria, Virginia. Two teams are working out, the Fort Wayne Daisies and the Racine Bells, getting in shape for an opening day doubleheader. Dottie Schroeder is quite confident that her hair won't get in her eyes. And keeping her eye on the ball is catcher Kate Vondreau. Okay, gals, play ball. it the squeeze is on tibby eisen slides home with a run and a nicely bruised leg better a bruise than long pants hey gals all right everybody that is it for this episode of you are good Thank you so much to Jade for being on the show. It was a tremendous delight to have you on. You can check out her podcast, Backline Nurse, uh, for more from Jade. And thank you so much, of course, to Carolyn Kendrick. Carolyn Kendrick produces the show. She's our music director. She puts together the sound collages. You can find Carolyn's EP, Tear Things Apart, and more at Carolyn's website, carolynkendrick.com. You know, Carolyn produces songs for our episodes. Um, you know, occasionally they are originals often they are covers from the movies and we're working on a way to release these songs people ask about this every week and i just want you to know that that is something that we are figuring out and we look forward to being able to share that with you as soon as we know how to do it Thank you so much to Fresh Lesh for the beats that we use in this show thank you to y'all for supporting the show at patreon.com/youaregood Check out the show notes for a playlist to accompany this episode. Every week we put out a playlist that is inspired by our conversation about the movie. There will be one about a league of their own. Find us on social media, of course, at Twitter and Instagram at YouAreGoodPod. And next week we'll be talking about Gross Point Blank with the great Chris Gethard. It's just exciting. I can't believe we had Chris on the show. All right, everybody, take care of each other. Take care of yourselves. It's so good to have you as always. And I look forward to connecting again. Be well.